Hello everyone, uh, welcome to another uh, edition of the Disaster Stream. I'm your good buddy, your good pal, Amigo Aaron here. Tonight we're going to do things a little bit different here. We're going to uh, we're going to have an interview, if you can believe it or not, a special guest on the show. Uh, you probably recognize that fellow, that fine chap. It's Frank from RetroRewind.ca. Frank, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm good. How are you guys? Real good. How real is good. everyone out in the internet world? You never know how they're doing out there, but uh, we're doing fine. I know Mobius has uh, just popped in while, right before we got started. Let me move you down here. So, Frank, first of all, uh, you've got an event coming up. I want to touch on this early on uh, so we can talk about it. Now, this is out. Is It's up in, uh, I know it's in Canada. It's in, it's in the northern part there somewhere. Where's it at up there? No, it's in southwestern Ontario in a city called Kitchener. It's about, give or take, 60 miles from Toronto, about an hour drive. Kitchener. It's the only uh, reason I know about Kitchener is this event, right? Because that's where they have it, right, every year? Yeah, it's also it also has uh, probably, I mean, second to MIT, the best uh, uh, kind of engineering, computer, and technical school, the University of Waterloo. Really? Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it's where BlackBerry was headquartered, uh, all that stuff was in the Kitchener Waterloo area. How big is how big is Kitchener? It's, maybe it's bigger than I think it is. Uh, I think between Kitchener and Waterloo, they're twin cities side by side. There's uh -huh. probably I'm going to say about four hundred thousand people. Really? Holy smokes! Yeah. <laughs> That's a huge yeah, town. <laughs> fair size. I might be. Someone might want to fact check that, but I think each one's probably got four hundred thousand or pretty close to it. I was thinking something along the lines of like. Charleston, <laughs> you know, I didn't think it was anywhere that big. So that's a massive town with a big university. Now, now this is this yeah. has been an annual event. It's been running for quite a while, right? Correct. Yeah, a few years. Uh, a guy in the community, Herc, uh, started it. He started it right during COVID or right after COVID, when restrictions were lifted. Yeah, I think people were just hungry uh, for something, uh, and it was a huge success. And then uh, the following year, he did it in this beautiful barn, which. Uh, I think you showed some of the pictures during the uh, stream earlier today. Yeah, that looked uh, awesome. Beautiful, beautiful barn. Yeah, it, it did. It was quite warm because it was a barn uh, so in the that, middle of summer. So that uh, was an actual barn. I thought it was just something that was supposed to yeah. look like a barn. No, it's it's an old heritage uh, farm uh, <laughs> that is available to the community. And yeah. this year he's gone beyond that and uh, gotten an old department store. So it's actually it's, it's pretty neat. He always comes up with very creative and unique uh, venues and. Uh, He's a good friend, and we love supporting him. What kind of what kind of uh, attendance do you expect that, that that something like that to draw up there, especially given the oh. amount of people you could draw from up there? I mean, last uh, I'm not sure if, if uh, Herc or Justice is in the chat. He said he was going to join us, but last year there was easily a couple hundred people that went through easily. Oh wow! And so, it was only a one day event for five hours. And this year uh, they're doing year, two years, only, right? Two days. Yeah, this year we're doing two days. Uh, and I expect the attendance to go up even more. Yeah, I would. I would imagine so. Especially to seeing Rabbi's event over there in the UK take off like that. People are getting back in the swing of going out, and they want to get into their hobby again. And of course, if you're an Amiga uh, person or even an old, just an old school computer person in general, you sort of have to pick and choose where you can go to have fun doing your thing. But it's good that events like this are popping up again. You know, it's amazing to me that a place like, because, I mean, how many years you said this has been going on up there? 
Is that for World of Retro Computers, it's the third year. This will be the third the year. The third that year. So that uh, it's amazing to me that places, uh, for example, it's like funny that London didn't have really an event at all of its own. And in a place like, you know, up there in Canada, it's going to have a very successful third run at it. So it just goes to show you that it's funny how the, the, uh, the, uh, the attention of these different computers is really sort of scrambled all over the globe in a weird way. You know, it's, yeah. you got a patch of people here and you got a patch of people there. Uh, so it's kind of, it's kind of nutty. Now, before I move oh, away before from Before I forget, we'll also be doing the World of Commodore in December. And now that's, uh, that one's, premier event. it's been around for quite a while, right? That one. Uh, since I think 82, yeah. since 1982. And, so, yeah. Uh, and we got almost a thousand people last year that came through across two days. Holy moly. Uh, so it, yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a mainstay in the community. Yeah. Right? Now, you know, having only seen you at Boat Fest and and Coco Fest, are you doing the same tricks at these big shows that you're doing at these small ones? Are you actually out there like working nonstop? Because I can't imagine servicing the amount of people that would be coming up to you at those events. No, I mean if it's if it's something that can be done quickly, uh, we will. Uh, but uh, anything that involves more troubleshooting and more. Uh, complexity to figuring out what's wrong with it we'll generally take it back like i'm not lugging you know scopes and everything else with me that's just not happening yeah uh the problem is i, I tend to get pulled around uh so thankfully uh people like jason jamie and troy uh usually are the ones manning the table while i'm just answering people's questions i did notice you getting jerked around all over the place everywhere we went the last couple of, the last couple of these you've been in and out of the picture non-stop so i can imagine what it's like in a huge show like that you know, I want to back up a little bit, because, of course, I've known you for a couple of years now, but a lot of people probably don't know about the your, the colorful way that you sort of got into the uh, into the hobby, aside from the fact that you're just an old guy, just like I am, and so you sort of grew up in it. So, like, what is what was it that got you in uh, to uh, computing back in the day, and then what, what did you uh, grow up using? So, the very first machine I ever owned was a, a Coco 2. Uh, now in the city of Toronto, in the greater Toronto area, uh, the majority of kids had Commodore 64s. And unfortunately my dad was, uh, pretty clear and said, listen, you want a Commodore 64? We need to sell the Coco. That's just the way it is. Yeah. And the driving factor behind that is, uh, you know, much like you've said before on screen, uh, I was a bit of a dirty pirate and every kid in the schoolyard had a C64 and not a Coco. Yeah. So it was really hard to come across. Uh, cool new things. So I uh, regret regrettedly sold the Coco uh, at that time in order to get a, a used Commodore 64, which was the first machine that kind of really got me deep into technology. Uh, the fact that, you know, you've got this box uh, and you can actually command it to do stuff uh, was, was miraculous for its time. I mean, we take this stuff for granted today. I mean, my, my smartwatch is about a thousand times more powerful than that Commodore 64, yeah. but it was just the fact that, you know, you could do this type of stuff and the games library was just insanity. Uh, you know, uh, and that, that built honestly a lifelong passion for technology. You know, you mentioned that you guys sold your Coco to get the C64. I think a lot of people, especially younger people don't get it. I don't, I don't know how your situation was, uh, Frank growing up, but, um, when we got, uh, my first computer was the Coco too. If you don't count the Odyssey too, my dad got me thinking it was a computer. And, uh, that was an expensive computer because all computers were expensive, period. 
And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, when you look and look now and, and you're like, oh, they cost two or three hundred bucks. Man, no big deal. Two or three hundred bucks in like 1983 or 1982 is a lot of money. And modem, oh, yeah. modems and printers and all the accoutrement that you get these computers cost a fortune. So I'm guessing your pop was in the same boat that my pop was. When it was time to get the new computer, we had to sell the old computer to get the money to buy the new computer. Yeah, my, my parents were, uh, you know, European immigrants that came here in the early 70s. Uh, and, you know, they worked, honestly, they worked their, their butts off in order to provide me with a decent living. And I never went without, I'm not going to complain. There was always food on the table, you know, always clothing on my back and I always a warm bed to sleep in. But that was it, right? I mean, they worked in factories. They, you know, they were just blue collar workers. Uh, you know, I was I was telling my son who, you know, every now and then, Hey, can I get, can you put like 70 bucks in my Xbox account so I can buy this? And I'd be like, I got one game a year during Christmas. That's what I got. Yeah. And that was it. There was no, no asking. And, and the C64, remember my father coming home uh, with a guy he worked with, it was a C64 in a box. And he's like, don't ask where it came from. It's here. Uh, <laughs> and he's willing to sell it to us cheap. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's, that's the way it was. I mean, uh, you know, uh, it was it was an upbringing that brought a lot of values and 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 you know made me the person I am. But we didn't go without. Yeah, but yeah. we like my parents took their first vacation. I think I was in university. Oh yeah, as an example. Yeah, right? yeah. So. You know, and, and you were talking about being a dirty pirate uh, again. Uh, this uh, there's a lot of connotations when you say something like that. But I mean, this is another thing. Uh, and I'm right there with you. I'd say we had pretty similar upbringings, uh, Frank, because my, both my parents worked in the whole nine yards. Uh, but uh, um, when I was a kid, one of the reasons Dad bought a Coco was because a guy at work had one, and he knew he could get a bunch of software. And it never even occurred to me uh, as I got older to come up to my dad and say, listen, I need you to give me 40 bucks for this game or whatever. I wouldn't have even asked. I was like, I never even thought about it, you know. No, that you know, you wouldn't look, have ended well with me. That's the thing you look back on now, and you're like, oh, boy, I wasn't a very good person. I mean, a lot of that stuff was ingrained. And it's a different era, too. But it was sort of ingrained. Yeah. It wasn't that you didn't think much about it, if I'm honest, at the time. Now, you uh, you went to university. What, what did you end up going to school to, uh, to do? Absolutely nothing to what I'm doing now. I did political science, political uh, science. in school. Uh, I did uh, uh, nothing. I, I've I've spent most of my most of my professional career working for a, uh, a politically driven organization. We'll just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this has always been, you know, a massive passion. Uh, so much so that I've decided to go back to the school and actually get my proper engineering degree uh, as I'm kind of winding down and, and keeping retro rewind going. You know, you got lucky uh, with that poli sci degree because who knew that it, as you got older, everything would be political. You can't go out and get a, and get a, a glass of pop or drink of water without getting involved in some sort of discussion. So on the flip side, I'm not trying to want to do that for a living. So yeah. <laughs> it's time, it's yeah, time to it, it doesn't get you much, but into arguments, that's pretty yeah. much all the degree. So about. now, uh, when did you actually start getting into the heavy side of doing tech work on, on, on computers and PCs? Uh, so I've been actually working in the, in this organization. I've been doing, uh, and I ran the IT department for almost twenty years. This is for the poly, uh, for, the, for the political out. The, so correct, you you really your correct. job wasn't necessarily it being too political. You were more like the tech. Well, guy. it started it started very political, and then uh -huh. it was one of these. Uh, hey, you you like to work with 
I see you know how to use a laptop. Yes. Why don't you uh, Why don't you go do that over there? Many right? of us have that uh, story, no don't right. we? <laughs> you start yeah. off in one oh. thing, and ultimately you're reprogramming a lock in the door, or you're going out to reformat something. I understand that all too well. So you sort of got nominated just because you had some knowledge. Well, because I knew how to turn a machine on. Uh, you <laughs> well, know, that's some uh, knowledge. I, I worked with a lot of people that uh, the generation gap was huge, right? Uh, I remember not that long ago, I'm going to say... About early 2000s, there was a guy who worked for us uh, who, when he went for his interview, uh, his job was actually to create our first website. Uh, uh, and when he went for his interview, the president of the organization said, uh, what are we going to do with you when this Internet fad dies down? We need to figure out what, how we're going to where you're going to land as soon as this Internet fad thing yeah. dies down. So, uh, you know, it came from an organization like up until, I don't know, four years ago, our, you know, our president still used the flip phone. Yeah. Uh, and didn't know anything else. Yeah, right? yeah. So, uh, it, it, you know, as long as you could type ten words a minute, you were perfect. We're gonna, we're gonna, you, you can run all the computers. Now, did at the time that you were doing this at work, were you also still a hobbyist back when you were on your off time? Uh well, yeah. I mean, I, my sixty-four has always been my sixty-four. Uh, not to the extent that that I've gotten back into it in the past, say five, maybe six years. Uh, my 64 was always with me, always ready to be used, uh, always ready to uh, to be turned on. Yeah. Uh, but it was about, I'm going to say five or six years ago that, that the bug really, really hit me hard. Uh, and then I started to repair and design and do all the other stuff that, that went along with it. So just, um, just, a, just a few short years ago, then six or so years, you say. What, do you recall what yeah. it was? What, what made you come get back into it uh, and to the extent that you've uh, emerged? Like, what was it that drew you back? Was it nostalgia at the time? Or did... Probably my ADHD, to be perfectly honest with you. I kind yeah. of was bored of what was happening and just figured, hey, you know what? I could I could buy this 64 for 20 bucks. It's broken. I'm going to buy it and, and take a really deep dive into what's wrong with it and figure out the circuitry involved. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just kind of came naturally. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was a time, it wasn't too far from five or six years ago, where you could just amass a ton of these old machines without thinking twice about it. And I probably, I'm guessing that at the time when you jumped in there, back into it, you never thought to yourself, "Hey, there could be a, a, a there could be a buck to be made here, uh, or there could be a uh, I could uh, load up on these things and maybe they're going to blow up." Because I mean, I didn't necessarily see it coming. Did you? Did you see where the where it was going to go when you started back in? Oh no, not a, not even close. I mean, I I would I had been going to so I've been a member of. T-Punk, which is the organization that runs World of Commodore, uh, the Toronto Pet Users Group. It's the oldest computer users group in the world. It's been around since like 1972 or something like that. Uh, and I've always been a member. I was a member when I was a kid. Uh, you know, in the 80s, we had 60,000 members wow. uh, that were members of T-Punk. Uh, I mean, today, I think we're still kind of in the 4,000 range worldwide. Uh, so, I mean, I was always attending World of Commodore. Uh, you know, there was some a while when my kids were really young and I first got married that I didn't, but for the past, I'm going to say at least 10 or 12 years, I've been attending religiously. Uh, and you can start to see the slow creep, right? I mean, you used to be able to go to World of Commodore and the freebies table would have three or four broken Amigas and Commodore 54 just sitting there, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Those days are long gone, like long, long gone. Yeah, you got that right. Um now let's talk about before we move into what you're up to now. I want to talk to you about uh, what you were doing and how the, how did you end up 
ultimately uh, being featured on TV. We've got to get into this story for you have people that hadn't heard it, because I find it fascinating. Yeah, I spent uh, quite a while on tech TV uh, doing first a uh, show that was called Call for Help, and then it was renamed to uh, Lab with Leo. They were very popular, um, very, very popular shows. I mean, I used to watch it when I could. I didn't have tech TV, but I had a buddy that did. We always tried to catch it because it was the kind of thing you didn't see on American TV, at least, all that often. And, and so it was always a pleasure. It's like, hey, I know what they're talking about, or this is interesting. You didn't see that sort of thing. No, no. Uh, I got I got involved um, from a friend of mine. By, uh, her name is Amber uh, MacArthur. She was one of the... Uh, original hosts of the show when it was moved here in Canada. Uh, and I, I kind of, the first time I went on was just to show off. I, I don't even remember what I was showing off. Myth TV, I think it was. Some of you might remember Myth TV. It was like a, a uh, kind of build your own DVR type of thing where you yes. record stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and then it just it just blew up from there. Uh, Leo's like, great, you want to come back? We uh, You can come back uh, and do, like we had a weird sketch. Uh, shooting schedule the the show aired monday to friday every day that's uh, so we had new episodes every day but we shoot a month's worth of shows in four days oh god so we'd all fly in yeah so it was chaos i mean we do four episodes a day and five episodes on the last day uh so you know it was uh i wouldn't call it fun uh it was intense uh you know we shot live to tape so you couldn't screw up you had to be on your game and, and it was literally like you know one thing after the other uh, and you know, it, it was a fantastic time. Would I do it again? Probably not. I'm going to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. you know but I had a, an now. absolute blast. I met, I mean, I met an incredible amount of people that, uh, to this day are still close friends. Uh, I got involved with, uh, dig.com in the early days, uh, to Kevin Rose. Uh, you know, I got to meet, you name it. Anyone in that, in kind of that, that sphere, I, uh, I maintain a close relationship with. You know, and we did, I don't know, I did probably 60 or 70 episodes in total. That was my next question. Now, you, of course, you hung out, you were there all the time with the cast. I've always found Leo to be a, a friendly fellow, a very knowledgeable guy. Was I, not, to, and, and not to put you in a weird spot, but I mean, was he, was he the same when you saw him off camera? Was he a good guy to hang out with, nice guy? Oh, yeah, he was a great guy. He was, you know, that, that, that perfectly... Uh, manicured persona got a little bit on the blue side uh but he was yeah he was a great guy that's all uh, leo, is. leo i will give him credit leo has a knack and to this day he has a knack of explaining things that are complicated to regular people in a way that they understand yet he's yeah. got that skill he's really good at connecting with people uh and and good on him because you know he's built a career and a life out of it oh that made him a star i mean i think that's his number one attribute plus he's just a Sort of a happy, jolly guy. It was a shame to see Take TV sort of descend into ultimately becoming with G4, I guess. And then we all know where that went. But uh, I, I really enjoyed the original Take TV quite, TV quite a bit. And actually, it was one of those things you could... Of course, you got to think this is... You know, we're talking way back. But there was, you couldn't just flip on YouTube to figure out how to do stuff back in the day. You know, this was a... I found it a very helpful resource for a lot of your more peculiar problems. And also, they would try more ambitious stuff on there that I never thought of, you know. So I always thought that was a, a kind of a neat use of the, of the show. And it was a shame to see it sort of fizzle out like it did. But I guess that's just the way this things well, go. We did a postmortem as to why the viewership dropped, right? There was, uh, so in, in the tech TV outside of the U.S., uh, a percentage of it was owned by uh, Rogers, which is like the Kojiko of Canada, it's a major 
um, not Kojiko, uh, Comcast of Canada. It's a major, major cable company. Sure. Uh, because there's Canadian content roles, and that's why some of the shows are shot in Canada. Uh, so they, the, uh, the, uh, the head of production for Rogers had wanted and really wanted to keep the channel going. And it was more about, you know, why are we losing viewership? And that's the reason that the ultimately the channel died. It's because the numbers just started to tank. And, you know, we came to the point where, you know, we were in that transition period where computers were readily available for people to purchase, but the average person wasn't buying one, right? It didn't become, for lack of a better term, idiot proof to use. Today, I don't know anyone who doesn't have a computer at home whether they actually know how to use it to its full potential or not. You know, people work with computers all the time. So manufacturers started making computers for the masses, not for, you know, the hobbyists uh, as it was. And once that transition started, you know, you didn't get the questions about how do I set my printer up? Uh, because most manufacturers have made it idiot proof. You plug it in and it just works, right? Uh, back in the day, it didn't. You have to have drivers and know what LPT port you were on, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so once that started to happen, you started to see the computer you know, things like this and iPads and kind of general devices becoming everyone friendly. You know, nobody was watching. At that point, nobody was watching. You know, I think you may have nailed it there with the post-mortem that you guys did because we talk about this all the time. Uh, there was a time where just to own a computer, you had to be a fairly intelligent, fairly capable person just to have a DOS machine at home, just to put a new audio soundboard in your computer, just to... Uh, put RAM in or and do anything. God forbid you change processors or update the cache or whatever, add an uh, FPU or whatnot. I think you may be onto something. And you're, it's also, I agree with you that they, it, there was, I'm not going to say it was dumbing down, but it was, you know, make them more accessible for your average person. And uh, your average person doesn't want to watch uh, Leo uh, do this sort of stuff because they wouldn't understand what he was doing in the first place. And the rest of it, they can yeah. figure it out on their own. So you may be onto something yeah, there. And Exactly. And the second, you know, and the second, uh, you know, uh, a computer dies on someone, they just go and buy a new one, right? I mean, they've become consumables at this point. You no longer are upgrading your motherboard and your RAM and your processor. You know, very few people still do that. Uh, you know, the, the, this community does that, but the average person, you know, five years hits the mark, out the door goes. Well, you know, it's, let's get a new one. Right? That's, a good, that's a good segue here because I was thinking, uh, I was thinking as I was setting this up, I was like to myself, what, you know, what items out there, when I was a young man, like I've got in my house here, I've got some old TVs, I've got some old radios, and I've got stuff like that. And there was a time where every corner of your neighborhood, there'd be a guy, there'd be a repair guy, maybe multiple repair guys. There'd be a guy that could fix TVs and VCRs. There'd be a guy that could fix your toaster. Or there'd be a guy that could fix your, you know, work on your radio. And if you think about how many of those repair businesses have gone away... And one would wonder that if a computer text would still be around if there wasn't such a renaissance for this ancient technology just to try to keep it going. It might have been, it might have been all lost, <laughs> if you think about it. Because if you think about now, how many people can go out and fix a tube radio? Not that many, you know. Uh, so in, in some ways, uh, it, we're very fortunate that people kept an interest in these things. And it's funny that a lot of the people that are interested in them, are, a lot of them are the same people that bought them initially, and just sort of never got over it for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, manufacturers haven't really made my. I'm sorry, my dog. I think is broken. He won't stop barking. So <laughs> my apologies. I, I uh, call but, that um, dogs. <laughs> manufacturers, uh, manufacturers really haven't made things that are consumer friendly and easy to repair. 
in a very long time. Like, I mean, I grew up with, with a dad who, I mean, I could take a carbureted engine apart with my eyes closed and put it back together and fix it. Uh, you know, my current car, it's nothing but sensors and ECUs and, and MCUs and computers. Yeah. Uh, so things were, were easier. TVs were easier. Um, you know, radios were easier. It, today, everything's just logic, right? I mean, it's, just, it's you know, once it goes, even manufacturers, like like I, I'm talking to you right now on a MacBook Air. If I took this into Apple, something broke. They ain't going to fix it. They're just going to replace the whole thing and give it to them. Yeah. Uh, because it's become a consumable, right? Yeah, I think you're dead on there. Which, it, it, it's funny you should mention that because I want to move into your current your current project, uh, which is RetroRewind.ca. Now, at what point did you uh, stumble onto the fact, like, hey, wait a minute, uh, you know, maybe I can get some action here uh, doing a store and repairs? Like, what what was what was the uh, process that led you from just being a hobbyist to going into this as a side business? So. To be honest, it was a conversation with my wife who eventually looked at me and said, all right, you need to either stop spending money on all this stuff because you're spending a hell of a lot of money or, or make some money out of it one way or the other. <laughs> uh, and I had been, I had been designing uh, products that scratched itches I had. Uh, and I thought, scratching my itch, maybe it'll scratch someone else's. And it started with simple, you know, hey, I got 10 extra of these because, you know, I made 15 and if anybody wants them. And then that just snowballed. Uh, I mean, repairing stuff, I've been doing that for quite a while, mostly through the community of T-Pug only, um, you know, because we used to have, uh, and we still do, they still do, uh, repair nights where the group would get together and everyone would bring broken machines and we'd all help. Everyone would kind of jump in and try to fix it. Uh, I mean, you still see that even at the World of Commodore show. Uh, people running over, borrowing tools, borrowing things to figure stuff out. So uh, that's always been kind of in my back pocket um but the manufacturing and everything that i mean that and that that took off like a rocket and i've had nothing but hold on to this wild horse and hope that it doesn't <laughs> throw me off because i mean i have no business experience everything's kind of learn as you go along uh you know figure it out uh you know attorneys and accountants and everything else involved uh because you got to play by the rules uh, if you want to be successful uh so you know uh it is what it is. It's been a rocket, and, and I'm very thankful. I'm thankful to the community. I'm thankful to everyone who's supported I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Frank, about trying to have to do everything the right way. I think, and, and I add myself to this list, so I'm not talking down to anybody when I say this, but I don't think people understand the amount of uh, red tape that you had to go through. I remember you were having a conversation. I'm not even sure I was even involved. It was It was your bench power supply, for example. And the amount of certifications and action you had to get on that, I was just sitting there, I was like, my God, I would never even have thought to do any of that. You know, how do you keep up with that? Explain to the people, just if you think of a good example of something, like what what's it take to get something like that off the ground, get it manufactured, and ultimately get it sent off to the consumer? So the majority of the manufacturing we do in-house, right? We've got pick-and-place machines, we have reflow ovens, we, we do all that stuff in-house. Uh, there are... Uh, there's an organization in Canada called the CSA, which is like the underwriter's laboratory in the States. Exact same thing. Uh, so much so that if a product carries a UL certification, it doesn't need the Canadian version. And if it carries a Canadian certification, it doesn't need the American version, right? There's a reciprocal deal. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we've, we've had to uh, uh, retain uh, lawyers to help us do this uh, because it's like, well, I want to sell this product. 
uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, people start, well, you need CSA certification. Well, let's let the lawyers take care of that, right? So the lawyers do the paperwork, do the homework. Uh, the CSA was fine with our design, but they required us to carry a million dollar liability policy in case something ever happened to it, in case it blew up on someone and caused damage. Uh, and when you, you go to an insurance company, which we did, and said, hey, we, we want to carry a million dollar liability on a product that we sell. Uh, it's one thing if we sold it locally, it's a completely different thing if you're selling it internationally. Uh, because then we need to have that policy reciprocated in every country that we sell it in. Uh, and that became like an astronomical amount. Uh, so we kind of backed away from that. But I mean, m like most things in my life, if I want something done, I'll just go find an expert in it and either pay them or ask them. Uh, and that's what we do in that regard is, is we do have a, uh, uh, um, a firm that specializes in corporate law that kind of handles all this stuff for us. Every time we want to do something, every time we want to, uh, you know, uh, create a product that we're not sure or, you know, hell, even create the, as you know, uh, we sponsor uh, the Amigos uh, and there's a four page document that you guys need to sign when we do so, right? Uh, you know, as it protects both of us. It protects you and me, right? Uh, ultimately, because uh, one organization I don't want to screw with is the tax men uh, because they can come down hard. So, you know, we play by the rules uh, as much as possible, uh, which is all the time if you're listening, Revenue Canada. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, you, you have to. If you want to be successful, you have to. And, and that's, you know, Luckily, it's never bitten us, and we don't think it ever will because we try to do our best. We try to do our best by our product, by our customers, customer service, whatever we do. Uh, but uh, you have to. You, you got to play by the rules yeah. when, you, when you're trying to grow something like this. Yeah, especially uh, in the litigious world of 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, another question, and I wondered this, and you're the man to ask. Um, you guys, I think you do some in-house design. I think you also get designs, uh, purchase designs, or license designs for the people. What would you, what would you say has been the most difficult product that you've brought to market in terms of length of time it took to get it made, or and versus the easiest thing you've you've brought to market? Do you have a couple like examples around in those realms? Well, I can definitely give you the most difficult, and that's the Coco SDC. Really, uh, simply be. Yeah, and, and the reason is uh, that the agreement we have with the original designer will not allow us to change the design. Uh, and that includes uh, converting it from all through-hole components to surface mount components. So the, oh. the Coco SDC is currently all through-hole. And I think there are <laughs> like a hundred, like 170 solder points oh, on it. Oh, I've never opened it up. Hand. I had no idea. Yeah. So it's all hand yeah. inserts. So, that's a disaster. One hundred percent. That's insane. Yeah. So that's when you're one hundred and eighty or one hundred and seventy solder points, and you're trying to make ten of them. That's seventeen hundred solder points that you have to do by hand. And those are in big uh, demand right? too. So that's so you probably do many much many so. of those. Yes, that's amazing. Very I had no idea. So. I should open mine up and have a look. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, that is by far the the hardest. All the other ones are surface mount. And since we actually moved to buying pick and place machines. You know, like uh, we did a run of a hundred of the uh, diagnostic harnesses for the C sixty four. Yeah. Uh, last week, sometime, and it took four hours to make a hundred. Uh, and it's more just babysitting the whole process, right? Yeah. Of it going through the the pick and place machine into the reflow oven, and we just got a uh, optical inspection machine that will actually inspect them as they come out. 
yeah. so we don't have to do manual inspection on them. So that has sped things up dramatically. I can imagine. Um, we do we do design a lot of our stuff. Uh, a lot of our stuff we partner with designers, uh, and some of our stuff we license from designers. Uh, we've always had this open door policy for people in the community that are are designing things uh, and don't have the ability to manufacture them. We'll work with them. We'll make them for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we'll make them for them and ship them to them. We do that with some people. There's some products that we make that we do not sell. We, you know, uh, designers have come up and said, hey, can you make 100 or 200 of these for me, including all the components? Yep, we can. And off they go. So there's kind of two phases to Retro Rion. It's almost starting to branch off into two different directions. Uh, kind of the the um, business to business end where we will work with someone and someone's got a product and they want to. You know, they don't want to open source it, and but they want to build it, and they don't have the time or the components or the ability to do that. We'll do that for them. Uh, and then some designers we work with uh, and say, hey, you know, uh, I know you've released this open source. Uh, we do not sell anything that is open source where we do not give money back to the designer. Whether they, you know, whether their license, you know, gives us the ability to sell. Because, I mean, to me, that's not fair. Someone, someone put some work in, and I know how much work goes into designing stuff. Uh, you know, it's only fair that they should be compensated for, for their work. Very good. Uh, so we, we kind of have this mix of everything. Very good. Now, let me, uh, just along the same lines, What did you, was there anything that you designed or had designed that you had out like, bam, like that? Like a super quick one turnaround? Uh, it probably didn't happen that often, does it? Oh, well, yeah, like maybe our, our like coin cell battery adapter that took like, you know, three minutes there to design and and breadboard, but uh, part nothing. I mean, most things, you know, going back to the doing things properly, we've got processes for quality assurance and testing. And we, when we design a new product, we'll make a small batch and sometimes send them out to select a few people, let them use them for a month or so, uh, get feedback on anything that, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not crazy about designing something and shooting it out the door without it being thoroughly tested. Sure. Uh, Cause that, that bites you in the behind, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It can bite you in the behind down the road. I can imagine. Now, I got to ask, um, we all lived through the pandemic years there, and some of us are still living through them, and by that I mean probably you. Um, talk about the challenge it was to keep the ball rolling at Retro Rewind when the availability of parts were was so low. So it's funny you bring that up. It was last night I was talking to the guys like Jamie and, and Jason Warrens and, and Troy about this exact thing. I got a status update from Mauser, one of the suppliers we use, on a product that I ordered December 2019 uh, that will uh, officially ship to me January of next year, as an example. <laughs> yeah. So we've still got orders out there that are outstanding. Uh, and, uh, you know, trying to find parts during the peak of that was, was a challenge. We had to shelf some product uh, because we just couldn't get the quantities we needed to produce. And we can get one or two here. And I really didn't want to just make one or two, put them up, and then people want more. Sure. Uh, we uh, we found uh, a parts headhunter in Hong Kong that we work with. Uh, and, you know, I tell him what I'm looking for and what I need. And, you know, he's off to the races looking for them, wherever he can find them. Uh, so that's been quite successful, uh, even for weird things like the, my uh, – the SX64 that I brought to BoatFest, the CRT in it was dead. Now, I know I could do the LCD mod. I didn't want to. I wanted the CRT. So I had this guy looking for this exact tube, and it took him, I don't know, four months. And eventually he emailed me and says, hey, I found like four of them in these like security monitors. They're the exact same ones. 
So that that was beneficial. Uh, problem is, there's a huge price tag on some of these parts sure. when you know they're huge demand. Uh, like the like the Kung Fu Flash, the um, uh, the MCU and the Kung Fu Flash. Normally, we were paying six bucks per, and to this day, we're still paying almost thirty per, as an example, uh, because it, it's still not caught up. There's still a backlog in certain places yeah. uh, that it, it causes grief, but we work through it. I mean, again, I, you just you go find the right person to help you. And let them go do their job, right? Yeah, you know the funny thing is, if if you're in this hobby, uh, and you see these price prices go up, you, I mean, mo- I'd say ninety nine percent of people they under they know the score, and a lot of times this is not the cheapest hobby to be in in any way. But that pandemic no, really strapped on the uh, added bonus cost. You know, I've got to ask since you mentioned it, uh, you've got a guy that looks for this stuff. What's it like? How I mean, had you ever had any? reason to make contacts in Taiwan and in China. It's It's got to be pretty interesting or even sort of a bit surreal to have these tendrils that you send out to get this information and to find the people mm-hmm. to get this stuff. Is I mean, is that is, is that as bizarre as it sounds to have all this information? I mean, where, are these people you met on the net? Or what do you, without giving away secrets, like where do you find these people? No, I mean, the law firm we use, right? So the corporate law firm we use specializes in international trade. Uh, because we sell stuff all across the world and there's all sorts of red tape with exporters licenses we need and everything else. So, you know, in having a conversation uh, with our attorney at that time, I was like, listen, uh, you know, do you by any chance, you know, and they they reached out to a law firm in uh, Hong Kong that they partner with and they're the ones that found the person for me. You know, it it always goes back to, you know, something my dad told me, you you know, when I want my taxes done, I go to an accountant. When I want my car fixed, I go to a mechanic, right? You find the right person. Uh, and, uh, you know, lawyers ain't cheap, but they do come through when you need them. Right. So everything, it, all our contacts overseas have all been arranged through the law firm that we use. That is really fascinating. Like I would have never made that connection, you know, just being a guy out in the streets so that I find that quite fascinating. Now, you know, I've got some... I'm hoping you'll uh, indulge me and answer a few chat questions here in a minute. Sure, absolutely. Before I send it over to him, though, I want to ask you, if I may, and you don't have... This may be inside baseball here a little bit, but you've been... RetroRewind.ca has been around now for, what, about, uh, what, three or four or five years, something like that. What's the... I don't know. Coming up, coming up, it's, it just, we just had our four-year anniversary. Four-year anniversary. Like, last month. Do, yeah. it, can you disclose, like, what was your... What is your all-time most popular item? What have you... What have just people just bought the heck out of? It could be the floppy park car, cardboard piece, or it could be a T-shirt, or it could be, you know, an expensive yeah, okay, accelerator. Okay, so if you're talking on volume numbers... Yeah. Uh, our... Uh, I thought I had one here. The... Uh, Cardboard insert for the 1541s that we sell. Yeah. Uh, in volume numbers. Yeah. Because people buy them. They don't tend to buy one at a time. They'll buy, I mean, they're a buck. They buy 10 or 20 at a time. I've got one so if you're looking over at, my pile here myself. So, yeah, they yeah. get around, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's a novel item. Oh, yeah. It's almost a throwaway item, right? I mean, we, believe it or not, we make, like, no money off of them based on the cost of printing and cutting them. <laughs> uh, but it is, it's a neat thing. It's a great add-on. Sure. So, on volume... It's that, like, by leaps and bounds. Uh, second to that, it uh, believe it or not, is the Coco STC. I believe it. Uh, I have never met a community as ravenous as the Tandy folks for products. Um, easily the Coco STC. And then I would say pretty much any of our diagnostic equipment would follow that pretty closely. Yeah. But the STC is 
like we can't keep them in stock. It is near impossible to keep them in stock. Well, just like it's near impossible to build one, and it works out pretty well. Yeah. Of all the it's, things, it just takes a while, isn't it? It's sort of ironic that the, the most difficult thing to produce is the thing that people want more than anything else. You know, I will yeah, say I what, think we're, we're pretty close to convincing uh, the original designer uh, because, I, frankly, I'm not going to lie to you. If, if we don't move to a model where we can mass produce it quickly, we we might have to stop carrying it. Simply because it just takes so much yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Right? It takes so much time. Yeah, and it, uh, it's quite reasonable too. And of course, if you've got a Tandy, you know, when you when you told me you were getting into the Tandy game, I I knew I was like, man, if he could get these, <laughs> and you and that was it, and you were gone. I knew I was like, man, these things are the cocoa people. You're I, right, and they're underserved. I need to give credit to Al Curtis Boyle. He's yeah. the one that lined that entire thing up. Yeah, uh, it was totally El Curtis Boyle that made the connection between me and Darren and did all the legwork. And uh, I mean, he's he's incredibly well well respected in that community. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so when he speaks, pretty much everyone listens. So he's been he's been actually fantastic as a supporter. He's helped us with you know coding issues with our diagnostic card. He's he's always there and always available. Listen, he's in here. Uh, Don't talk too good about him because we'll never get his head out through the door because oh, he's no, in here right he, now. Oh yeah, no, he's terrible. Now, terrible guy to deal with. Let me ask you. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some of these questions here, Frank. That are from the community, if you don't mind. So we got to, we've got a lot sure, of good I'm ones. Bring here. Up our I'm gonna bring our mascot. Yeah, up bring here. the mascot in. There's the mascot. There he the is. Rewind mascot. Yeah, he'll be pulling the dog sled later. Uh, so, Super Tech Boy chimes in here, Frank. He asks, Are there any uh, system boards which uh, uh, which you think? What were the engineers thinking when they designed this thing? Uh, the Amiga 3000 definitely is one of them uh, because it was late enough in the production run that they could have done surface mount components. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't. Uh, like 85 to 90% of the components are through hole, uh, which forced them to use a four layer PCB, which makes troubleshooting. I mean, outside of having the PCB X rayed, uh, makes troubleshooting dead traces near impossible because of the multiple layers that are in that board. Yeah. Um, definitely the 3000. They did, I mean, they did a great job packing it in, but it was just like, what were you guys thinking? There was a, you know, you could have used surface components like you did on the 4000 a couple of years later. They didn't want to switch uh, over the factory, Frank. That, that's good. That's an, they're cheap, brother. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, according to David Pleasance, when I talked about it, it wasn't that. It was just simply that they could produce the through-hole components cheaper through Moss. Yeah. Uh, Moss didn't have the facilities yet. He would know. To uh, make some of them, right? So it's all about the dollar, yeah. the dollar bill. Now, um, uh, that's a, that's a, I, I, you're not the first person I've heard say that about the three thousand. By the way, um, I think it's an excellent uh, answer there. Another question I've got here is what? Now you do a lot of we didn't touch on this, but you do a lot of service, uh, not just uh, selling new stuff, but tons and tons and tons of repairs on people's personal computers. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. I want to get to that a little bit more in a minute, but the question that Tech asks is, what's the most difficult system to recap? You'd be the man to ask, and you've worked on them all. Um, to rec I wouldn't say difficult. Time-consuming would be the equally the 2,000 and 3,000 because we have to do them by hand. They're sure. all through whole components. Uh, I mean, it, it, I'm not telling secrets here. You guys are always talking about how, how are we able to do these recaps so cheaply. You notice that 2,000, 3,000 are exceptionally more expensive than, say, a 1,200. Uh, simply because at 1,200, we lay the paste down, lay the caps down, and put it in the oven. Yeah. And it's done, right? I mean, it literally, we start to finish, we can recap a 1,200 in anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. Right? So it, it's not a huge amount of work. 
where the 2000, I don't know, there's like 1847 microfarad caps alone yeah. that are through hole components. There's, I think there's 39 or 40 through hole caps. They have to be done by hand. So they're a bit more time consuming. They're not difficult. They're just time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and plus, every time you pop one of those things, yeah, there, you never know if there's any sort of if there's been any sort of leaking going on or anything in there. You never know what you're going to run into. On top of that, and those are those are both tough about that. So yeah, you do so much recapping. If you didn't have the, I mean, having worked in a, on an assembly line like I did, I can appreciate what having the special uh, equipment that you have, what that adds to the process. Because without oh, it, it, I would jump off many cliffs if it, if it was me doing it. It makes life. It makes life. It gives us the ability to do things as quickly as we do. To be sure. perfectly honest. I've got one here from our good buddy Mobius. Uh, he asks, uh, as the availability of these old machines go out of circulation, uh, where do you see the future of the Amiga platform going? It's a good question. Where, where do you see it? I mean, we've just me and Bo just talked about someone who was pitching an A six hundred mini computer, and we've got the. We also talked about Trevor Dickinson's uh, new project with the uh, his new machine. Where do you see the community going with all this stuff? You get the vampire and all this stuff. Well, the community has been fragmented since the day it started. To be perfectly honest yeah. with you, so there's always been these various splinters. The you know the OS four versus the original OS that split that happened 25 years ago. Um, today's day and age, thankfully, we have replacement motherboards. Uh, we have replacements uh, for a lot of the custom chips, not all of them. Uh, thankfully, people like Dave Haney still have their original uh, hardware description files for some of those custom chips uh, that'll make uh, replicating them with modern technology like FPGAs and like TPLD for the smaller components like we do with our neat PLA for the 64, uh, a lot easier. Um, and the same thing's been happening in the, in the Coco community. You've got replacement PCBs. Uh, you know, like we get 4,000s in all the time. And it's actually, when we talk to customers, in the 4,000, because of where the battery was, uh, there's some significant damage if that battery isn't removed in time. Uh, and it's actually easier just to tell the customer, you know what, we should just transplant everything onto a new board. Uh, because they're there, all your chips are fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, we lay the stencil down, lay the paste, pull the chips off, lay the small um, passive components like the resistors and the capacitors with our pick and place machine, and they just manually place six or seven custom chips into the oven. It goes, test, and you're done. Uh, and that tends to be quicker because at the end of the day, we charge hourly. So, you know, if, if I tell you it's going to take seven hours at 85 bucks an hour to fix your old 4,000 motherboard, or it'll cost you a third of that to just transplant it to a new one that's going to last you forever. You know how people go, right? Yeah. And you still have the, I mean, some, some people argue, is it an original Amiga? Well, yeah, it is. To me, it is. It's 100% an original Amiga. It's just got new, newly manufactured components. They're yeah. the same ones. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the Amigas withstood a lot in 20 years, and I think it'll continue to withstand. Oh, I mean, look at the community around the pet. And the pet was released in the 70s. Yeah. And there's still a massive community around the pet. So, I mean, as long as people still enjoy this hobby, and you start to see young people. I met a, a guy at the World of Commodore who was like 17 or 18 years old and asked for help with a pet. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? My daughter's way older than you. <laughs> you actually know what a pet is? And that was fantastic to see that. And I think that's what we need more of. We need more uh, 
not just fresh blood, but young blood yeah. coming into this hobby uh, in order to keep these things going. Yeah, yeah, you know, so you were... I, I think as long as the community, as long as the community enjoys it, Mobius, it'll keep going. Yeah, you remember when we at Bofus, there was a kid there. Heck, none of us knew him. His name was 12, 12 Gauge Mage. And he bought a yep. bunch of retro stuff, uh, and he was really uh, getting into it, you know. And I thought to myself, this is nice that we've got, you know, in, in a room full yeah, of Jason, old people. Yeah, uh, Jason fixed his 1200 for <laughs> That's right, that's right. I mean, the yep. fact that this guy's yep. got a 1200 in the first place, and he was from the sti double sticks, too, of West Virginia. But it made me happy to see a, a kid like that coming up. You know, hey, if we did anything at that thing, we got got the kid on board, got him fixed up. That's and um, that's that's plenty already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so here, this is a very intriguing question here. Another one from uh, Super Tech Boy, because uh, you ship pretty much worldwide, Frank. What is the most remote country you've ever received an order for? You know, where have you? Where have so you we, I, that? I went through this with my wife not that long ago. We <laughs> ship to every continent except for Antarctica. It's the only continent we have not shipped to, uh, and the. I, I don't know about remote. The most unique country is probably Eritrea in Africa. Um, we do a lot of business in Australia, like a lot, a lot of business in yeah. Australia. I've never been able to put my finger on like how that came to be, but we do do a lot of business. In and they've, they've got a unique market down there because they, they're into the cocoa, they're into the Amiga, they're into like their yeah. own stuff, the Dick Smith System 80, Dick Smith Wizard, the stuff that yeah. got brought over. You know, so I think that's, they're a really, they're a real oddball country, but they've got a real, a lot of passionate, uh, you know, old school oh, computer fans. So. Very, what was very that country? You could, Euro, what was that again? The, uh, Eritrea. It's a country in Central Africa. How? It's a tiny country in Central Africa. I never heard of that yeah. one. That's a new one on me. Um, so, you know, yeah. you put this guy over, and so here he's got a question here. Uh, L. Curtis Boyle. L. Curtis in. Boyle. He says, um, and I'm going to read this verbatim here. As as true uh, retro machines get rare and more expensive, have you thought about working with others to make new motherboards? For various retro machines, or even duplicating a machine outright. Now we just talked about this briefly uh, with the Amiga. Now I, I want to before we get into Curtis's question. You mentioned Dave Haney. He was pretty his his notes and and documents. They're pretty pivotal in a lot of these. I mean, he was a pretty big record keeper for the for the old Commodore stuff, right? So he was pretty important to the community uh, in that in that department. I thought that's well. He also he also designed most of the right. custom chips himself, right? right? I mean, if you didn't have his, yeah. if you didn't have him in the game, it would have been a heck of a lot of a uh, more difficult journey. But you're not going to have Very a Haney in every for every computer, let's say. So no. what do you think no, about what do you think about maybe putting together some new Coco three boards, putting together some new uh, you know whatever uh, boards you can think of? Have you ever thought about doing that? Yeah, but I mean, you, you, I put my business hat on and I look at kind of the return on investment. The Cocos never had the capacitor leaking or battery leaking problems that, um, uh, say, the Amiga 1200 or 600 did, right? Right. Um, so you, you tend not to see boards that have been destroyed, uh, you know, by no fault of the owner. Right is the, the best way to describe that. Yeah. Um, so you tend not to see that, and by not seeing that, uh, you tend not to see uh, machines that have been destroyed and need new motherboards. Right. Right. So I think you know to counter that, uh, I think we need um, you know more of those custom chips worked on. That seems to be where the need really is. 
Uh, now with the 3000 and the, not so much, well, yeah, the 3000, the 4000 on the Amiga side, um, you know, and the C64 a little bit differently because the, the PCBs were just crap. The substrate material was terrible. They start to delaminate yeah. uh, because of age. I don't see that with Cocos. I've never seen a Cocoa board delaminate. Yeah. Uh, they use good quality substrate when creating the PCB. Uh, you know, there's no battery inside of it, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, none of the caps, you know, were of the generation that leaked, whether they were, you know, stolen formulas or whatnot. Uh, so I, I tend not to see boards that get destroyed. Um, I think if we work on the custom chips first, then you can do stuff because recreating a, a PCB is easy, but time consuming, right? Sure. I mean, you sand it down, you remove, you know, you remove the mask, you look at the, the traces, you photocopy it or scan it. You can redraw the traces by hand. Like most people have with the C64 replicas and the uh, Amiga replicas. Uh, but the custom chips, I think, are what really, because once those die, it doesn't matter if you got a new PCB. There's no replacements for it. Your computer ain't going to work. Right, right. right. Uh, I think working on, on the custom chips, uh, you know, like getting the new Gimme X back up and running and getting some of the custom Motorola chips inside of the C60 or inside of the Coco uh, recreated, which will be a bit difficult considering Motorola is still around and they might have a problem with that. But, um, you know, recreating a Coco PCB isn't a big deal in the long run. I just don't see where the demand would be yeah. for buying a, a brand new Cocoa PCB. Right? I, I think you're right on. And uh, yeah, first of all, I agree. The Cocoa, uh, all the Cocos right across the board seem to be a pretty well-made uh, set of boards. And yeah. you're also talking about something that doesn't generate a ton, ton of heat. Doesn't have a lot. Like I said, you were they were pre horrible, horrible capacitors, which have ruined my life yeah. and yours over the years uh, for oh, my yeah. various jobs. Uh, so I can, I, and you know, one thing I wonder, we were talking about the, uh, the A4000, the, you know, when they redid the boards, I mean, mm-hmm. no one's going to do that to make money. I mean, that's, that's, you're never oh, going to, no. it, it's, and I think that's something people have to understand. And, it, and I think they mostly do, but when you, if it's easy to say, Hey, let's recreate X. But I mean, you've got to realize that the, that you're talking a demand that could be in the double digits. Or maybe that you're, and if you get lucky, you saw a thousand or whatever. But you're probably not. And yeah, you know, the the amount of money it would take just to to sit down and figure it all out and get and then have the things manufactured, it would be next to impossible to ever make a dime unless you sold them for an astronomical yeah. sum. You know. So one thing people need to realize is the bigger a PCB is through the manufacturing process, the more exponentially expensive it gets. You know, you see things like PCB weighing, you know, it's like $5 for PCB. Yeah. But if you look at the fine print, it's like the PCB cannot be any bigger than four inches by four inches. If you went to PCB with, with the Gerber files for an Amiga 4000, and the minimum order you can do is five, uh, you're going to be paying about $80 per board yeah. to be made, right? Uh, because it is a lot of setup time to make a PCB that big. Right. There's a lot of setup time, a lot of testing that has to go on. Um, and, you know, it's a multi-layered board. They they can't do it at their usual here. Here's five PCBs for five bucks because, you know, the ones that they advertise are only two layers and are about this big. Yeah. Right. right, I mean, right. It's fine for prototyping. But when you start to get into that that area, in order to actually get a price break, you'd have to order like anywhere between 40 and 60,000. And, you know, I could order 40 or 60,000. Even if I ordered 40,000 Cocoa 2 PCBs, I'd have them in stock for the next 450 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? absolutely. You know? 
Yeah, it's funny. Let me ask you, this is just an opinion question here, but um, we look at, I mean, you were talking about transporting all the stuff off the uh, uh, 4,000 board onto a new board, something like that. I mean, and that in itself is a undertaking, to say the least. There's a lot of swapping in there. But pretend there is no 4,000 board. Let's say you've got a, a 3,000 or whatever. Some that have a board. Mm-hmm. We're going into the realm of uh, where we've got the ability to take an FPGA uh, or, or a series of other chips. And, and, and you know, because there's always, there's the there's Jerry Ellsworth's, you know, C64 on a chip, Atari on a chip. Eventually, these things get boiled down and something like that when they can if you're you and so you have a vested interest in this but you see a day coming where we're gonna have these chip these boards are gonna be boiled down into something like an fpga and i mean is 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 the community ever going to accept this as these machines go older and older i mean you're gonna get to the point where you don't have a choice aren't you at the end of the day i mean you're seeing it now with things like the mister yeah uh the mini mega uh there's the the um Coco's got one. I can't remember what it's called. Coco FPGA, I think. Curtis might want to remind me of what it's called. So you do see development on these dedicated machines. Right. Uh, the Mini Amiga is probably the first one that did this, which was a recreated Amiga. Uh, motherboard's about this big, and it contains an FPGA uh, that kind of does all the custom chips. Um, Commodore community can be unique at times i was waiting to see how uh, you're going to phrase that <laughs> uh, the uh i shouldn't say the commoner community the amiga community that's where the poli major comes into play right there kicked in <laughs> yeah so like personally from a personal opinion uh as long as you're enjoying the computer itself it doesn't matter if you're to me it doesn't matter if you're using uae fpga or real hardware as long as you're enjoying it right uh-huh. uh because at the end of the day we all get joy from playing these games or watching demos or, you know, screwing around with programming languages on these machines. So from a personal standpoint, listen, I've got a mister. I've got, I can't even count how many Amigas I own. Uh, and, uh, and I've got FSUAE running on my Mac. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it all depends on, on the situation. I, um, I had a conversation with someone. There's a, a demo that I wrote for the uh, C64 that I had running on the uh, SX64 at BoatFest with our logo and a, yeah. you know, an old, my old pirate days kind of coding and a conversation with someone uh and I, I wrote it in like you know 10 minutes on my macbook you know and they were oh but that's not that's cheating and i was like why why would it be cheating you know because i used modern things like you know find the find search and replace in a modern text editor as opposed to actually doing that on a c64 where you know uh, you you spend three hours trying to debug the thing by hand when you, you made a stupid typo somewhere. Why wouldn't I use modern coding tools that'll help me do that? That happened even to me, that, in, that's in the original days. I mean, I, how many uh, ZX Spectrum games were coded on the ZX? No one wanted to code on that keyboard. They were using anything yeah, exactly. you could get hold of. So that's not that unusual. <laughs> it's funny that. So you do get people that are like, well, that's not real. It is real because it runs on the hardware. Yeah. Right. It's on a floppy disk and it runs on any Commodore. Yeah. Yeah. Just because I developed it somewhere else. Uh, and then there's the camps that, you know, well, FPGA is cheating. You know, I think personally this infighting mm. needs to stop because all it's doing is driving the hobby further and further down. Listen, whatever floats your boat is the way I look at it. Yeah. Right? As long as you're part of this hobby. I mean, people that watch your show, they watch your show because of the game review. I don't care what they're playing the games on, right? Uh, you know, you want to sit in your laptop in a hotel room while traveling, playing, uh, you know, uh, 
beneath the steel sky, go nuts. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, that's just my opinion. If you think about it, we're probably the first and last generation of, of people that are going to be playing on these original machines anyway. <laughs> because, I mean, there's well, there's going to be a day come where no one's going to have a choice and, and this conversation will be irrelevant. You know, they'll have these things packed in a vacuum sealed envelope somewhere just to keep what's left of them in, from turning to dust and then it won't matter. I'm kind of like you on that. Yeah. You know, I got one more yeah. question here and I've got I've, uh, a question sure. of my own here. Um a fellow asks, uh, and this is interesting since we just talked about it. Uh, do you have any videos? I think. Do you have a YouTube channel? I'm not even sure. I think you do, don't you? You don't have any at all. Uh, so you well, don't have. No. You don't have any videos of of you, uh, the process of repair. Someone asked what thinks that would be interesting to see you actually the process of repairing one of these things. I mean, we've seen guys like Chris Edwards. Uh, or Doug, or some of these other guys do that. But, I mean, I will say, none of them do it in a uh, from more of a factory perspective, like, you know, go, using uh, uh, ovens and whatnot, like you're doing, uh, neither ones I've seen. Do you have, you ever thought about doing a little video of your process, or maybe how you, uh, how your factory looks there? We can, yeah. I mean, I, I never thought about it. It might be kind of fun. Now. I mean, personally, I think it would be a bit boring, simply because, most of the stuff is automated. That's I mean, it. Can, That's the editing right there, yeah. pal. It's some music back right? there. You're good to go. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> like the repair, like, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. If I'm like looking for a dead trace or if I'm looking for a trace that's burnt or broken, uh, I, I'm going to take it up to the PCB house that we use and ask them to x-ray it for me. Yeah. I mean, I need to minimize the time, right? Uh, and Chris is fantastic at what he does, but he does everything manually. Yeah. Which is fantastic. I, if I did everything manually, people would be waiting three years. Oh, he's nuts, stuff, too. Right? There's also that. He's out of his yeah, mind. Yeah, he is. He's crazy. He's bonkers. He's also very dedicated. And you know what? He's very, very knowledgeable. Because oh, yeah. Me and him chat uh, privately all the time about this stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just easier. You know, it, it's the quickest way. It's like, uh, I'm not going to sit here and, like, trace this thing out by hand or, you know, like, use a logic uh, pulser to figure it. No, I'm just going to. Hey, X-ray this for me and use your software to figure out wh where the broken trace is for me. Oh, it's right there, Frank. There you go. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Uh, and then you know the job's done. I know what I'm. I know what I need to fix, and then I go ahead and fix it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know what? I think maybe I will put some GoPros up and kind of walk through and, and create it like a just a process video on you, you know maybe a, repairing a '64 or something simple like that. You do a montage. You put the theme from Karate Kid in the background, and you're done. That's all there is to it, Frank. It's that's right. that's how we I'll operate. Be catching, uh, I'll be catching 805 resistors with a pair of chocolate. That's right. You know, and it's funny. Uh, people, I I think to myself watching people repair stuff because I do a, a little bit of repair now and again, and I do a lot of computer work. And I think to myself, I've had people have me come to their house and work on their computer. And you just sit there, sort of pounding away. And this is a lot of the same way repairs. I thought to myself, who would want to see this? It's like I picture myself being videotaped working on something. It's so boring. You're right. You need to, it has to be pepped up. But at least you have gizmos and doodads that your average person wouldn't have seen, which make it a little more interesting uh, to look Yeah, at. like, I mean, we have tools that, there's a standard process when we're diagnosing stuff, right? Depending on the machine. Uh, you know, uh, and and that process is is pretty standard, and it, and we it's, we've we haven't documented in our kind of standard operating procedure, so that anyone who's working on it knows here's the procedures that you should follow. Uh, to me, they're boring because you know, like Josh Malone, is fantastic at this. When he does his streams, 48k RAM, and he's trying to fix a a, a machine, uh, I know that he could do that what he's doing in 10 minutes. But he 
drags that on for about two hours. He's talking to people. He's answering questions. He's looking for parts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so I love I love people like Josh and Chris and what they do and how they document it. Um, I fear that it would just slow us down, right? Sure. Uh, but I will. Oh, yeah. I, you have my word. I will process. I will document one one machine. There you uh, go. You know that I'm working on and kind of show everyone the process we go through. I'm not sure if the PCB house will allow us to film in there to get the x-ray, but I'll ask. I mean, we do a lot of business with them, so. There you go. Uh, I'll ask to see if, if they'll allow us to do that. Oh, that'll be, that might be kind of neat. Now, listen, I got two things uh, to talk to you about, and then we'll, and then we'll let you get out of here. Uh, the first thing I've got to ask uh, is, because, uh, I mean, this is mandatory, and I almost always ask this when, when you do ICC, uh, but what is uh, what, are we, what can we look forward to in the next, uh, say, six-month, to uh, eight month period here. What's is there the new hotness coming? Or is there something we've been waiting on? What do you got cooking that you could just give us a little tidbit on, or maybe it's coming out or it's out now? It just came out. There will be a audio product uh, that uh, is a joint venture uh, hardware from us, software from Nick Morenti's for the Coco. Yep. Uh, that uh, is currently in its testing phase. That's I've got pretty a little, much all I can. I've got a little inside now, but... baseball on this because Nick has been yeah. dabbling with some stuff over the years. So that uh, that yeah. is very exciting, and not he's not the only one. So that that is no, very, no. very exciting. We uh, are working on an audio product that I think will uh, revolutionize uh, the Coco as an audio machine uh, directly with Nick. Nick is is writing the software. We are creating the hardware, and it'll be a package deal. Uh, you know, you, you need the software for the hardware, obviously. Uh, and this is kind of, uh, uh, honestly, it was his brainchild initially. Uh, and, uh, after conversations, we, you know, I, I kind of took the gauntlet and ran with it and it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an interesting thing. And I think it'll be a successful thing in the cocoa community. You know, the, the, so, uh, the cocoa I, people are probably going to lose their minds cause they're, I'm telling you, you get something out there and you know how they are and uh, you could have partnered with a better guy because we of course we both know Nick I, I don't know him real well but I know him casually but one thing I do know about yeah. Nick is his games are great he's a great yeah. <laughs> he's good to go no he's a fantastic yeah. coder he oh, knows how to no he knows point. how to how to do it so that that's awesome I'm glad to hear that now yeah, and even like looking at the alpha versions maybe would be the best way to describe it of the software right now yeah uh, unless you were told that this thing was on a coco, you'd never guess that it was on a coco. Oh man, uh, which is fantastic! It's mind blowing that he can the stuff he can do with that machine. Well, I'll say what I've been saying for since I uh, started finding people that listen to me. If you don't have a coco, brother, you need to go out there and get you one. Now's the time. Get them before the gun. You know, buy them up. Yeah. But those coco threes are going like hotcakes. Now, now you know, uh, I interviewed a, a slew of people at Boat Fest. Like I said, I missed you guys. And so, I, I, being the homer that I am, uh, and since I asked everyone else at Boat for this this question, I'll close on this. Uh, what did you think of, uh, this is your second trip to Boatfest this year, and did you see anything uh, you found interesting this time around? I, the one thing I found interesting, uh, funny enough, wasn't related to Boatfest itself, is... I had the best pizza in the world. <laughs> I heard. Uh, I heard it was and, great, but I had yeah. to leave. You well, say. a whole bunch of us. Yeah. A whole, whole bunch of us went over there. And and the first, we ate there, a whole bunch of us ate there the first day. The second day, I went right back with a whole bunch of other people. I'm yeah. like, yeah, this pizza is fantastic. Um, I have been to a lot of places 
uh, in my career uh, all over the world. Uh, the hospitality that I felt in that town was second to none, right? I mean, it was, it's got that small town feel, but everyone was just so nice, except for the gas station attendant across from the hotel, which is a whole other story we need to talk about one day. <laughs> he, he wasn't a big fan of your mayor. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's always but, one. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> apart from that, like, you know, be walking in the town or wherever, and people would see the badge and go, oh, you're here for that computer show that's in town. And I thought, wow, Boat's really, Boat and Aaron really got this thing, you know, kind of on the move, got an opening thing with the mayor. I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, that was nice with the mayor coming around. I was I was pleased that, that he came around. Hey, the guy knows. How often are you going to have this uh, uh, this sort of uh, meeting from all over the place in that little town? It's unusual, to say the least, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, people like Pajaco and Mitz coming from England and, and Graham coming from the other side of the world. Yeah. Uh, was is like it's it's mind blowing. Listen, you guys know that you'll always have our support. We've been we've been sponsoring and supporting you guys since day one. Uh, and even if Boat Fest was two people, we'd be there uh, just because it's it's so much fun. It's a great gathering. It's a great place to just talk and hang out with like minded people. And I hope that I hope the Boat Fest carries on. Well, I, what started as what initially was a joke has become. Quite successful, I think. I don't think we could. I don't think as a vanity project. I don't think Boat will ever let it die. He'll be there looking at a mirror with one of those uh, one of those Tommy games in his hand, playing it, and he'll be like, "Yeah, somebody stream this quick." Uh, if I'm he hasn't gotten a customized West Virginia license plate yet that says Boat Fest. No, <laughs> don't uh, listen. You say that now. Listen, as we, before we wrap this up, Frank, do you have any plugs you want to give out your uh, your ex? Or your Instagram, any of that stuff. Go ahead and do get your plugs in, man. Retro Rewind CA, all together, all the social media platforms. Uh, we do have uh, we have a, our own Mastodon server. If people want to leave X, which is a whole other conversation. We've already been talking about that mess. <laughs> yeah, uh, and are looking for a different type of platform that is friendly to the retro community. Retro Rewind Social. You can sign up for your own Mastodon account. Uh, we've got the fantastic world of retro computing coming up September 16 and 17. Um, we've got uh, Bill Hurd and Dave Haney doing a workshop. Uh, That's all uh, you need to say right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jerry Ellsworth may or may not come. You didn't hear it from me. Um, and uh, it'll be a fantastic time. You know, any any retro, it's like VCF North, uh, you know, uh, any any machine, you'll see everything there. I mean, we saw... I saw, last year I saw a machine, God, I wish I could remember what it was called, but it was a very obscure machine from the late 70s, and it was about, it was about the size of a small car, oh. and they managed to bring it in, uh, and, it, and it and made it run, so it was fantastic to see. Uh, and then, of course, uh, World of Retro, or World of Commodore in December, Coco Fest in May, and Boat Fest next summer. It, you, you're you're lined out good and proper. Let's not forget. Here's a cheap plug for me and the channel: International Computer Club, coming up uh, the second of September, five p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Frank's already signed up. I've got we got uh, six seven people already signed in, uh, and that should be always. That's always a good time, Frank, when we get together and do that. Sort of like this, which is like a hundred people. Let me see if I can get. Uh, let me see if I can get someone to join us. Uh, let me work on a few people and see if they can uh, pop in and say hi, like David Pleasance did last time. Yeah, that was great. You know, I, I, I like Mr. Pleasance. He's always been a real nice guy to me, and it was great. I've met him a couple times now, and uh, I know he had a rough year, but, uh, but the guy, I think the guy's a real nice guy. It's just me. Uh, oh, he's but, a fantastic uh, we had him. We had him up at World of Commodore 2 last uh, December. We flew him in. 
Yeah, I mean, he's, he is. He's a true gentleman. Very good. Well, listen, uh, Frank, thanks again for giving me a little bit of your time. I've, I've been dying to get this in. So when you uh, said you had it, I was like, I'm ready to go, brother. Uh, so, hey, look uh, at that. I just noticed. There, visit us right there. There I'll you go. There. Well, right. listen. Right I, there. there you go. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to leave the plug out in the road, man. You know how I know how to do it. Uh, thanks, everybody, for popping in. Oh, remember, people, if you do uh, visit our website, Amigos 10 will get you 10% off. That's right. You Don't heard it. That. Hey, listen, there you go. He knows it's coming. Make sure you sign in, brother. Make sure you log in before you That's use that right. code. I, even I know that. Hey, have a good weekend, everybody. Me and the Brit will be back uh, this Sunday for ARG Presents, and we'll be back next week for another disaster stream. Who knows what's going to happen? Even I don't know. I never know ahead of time. That's what we like it. That's why it's a disaster. Have a good weekend, everybody. Take her easy. Thanks, guys.